The 3CR Gardening Show is coming to you today from the Woi Wurrung Nation. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners of this land. We recognise the practices of care and cultivation of the land and waters by the First Peoples and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Wherever you are and wherever you garden, we encourage you to know whose land you're on. Good morning, good morning, everybody. It is about 7.30. It's Sunday morning, and that means it's the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop, and we've got a cracker of a show for you this morning. At 8.30, we'll be chatting with CEO of Eco Guardians about their mechanical rapid composter being trialled at the City of Melbourne. Uh, but for now, I have the great pleasure of introducing Evan Gorky from Oka Landscape, Garden writer, author, garlic expert, etc., etc., Penny Woodward, and healthcare gardens coordinator and horticultural therapist Stephen Wells. Good morning, everybody. Morning. Good morning. Morning. I was just wondering if there might have been a uh, zombie apocalypse on today because it was so busy coming in, but um, I'm not sure if anyone else had that issue. There's a few more people on the road this morning than I expected at this time of the day. Yeah, just it seemed almost like a um, bit of a Monday morning with people. Really, it wasn't? Yeah. It was quiet on my yeah, it was my neck of the woods. That's weird. It's been the that is very that weird. Coming. Yeah. Oh, I have to tell you though, coming in at this time of year, what I love is just as you get close to the city, all the bats are coming back in to roost. So you get to yeah. see them flying yeah. overhead, uh, and you don't often. Well, I don't often see them on mass like that. Yeah, yep. we had um, autumn mists for the first time, oh. so that was really nice. So you know, down in any gully, it was quite thick mm. mist, yep. and that really tells you that autumn's here. Yeah, we did as well. Yeah, yeah, out, yep. yeah around Berwick. Yeah. Mm. Are you on a hill, Penny? Just realised um, I've never been to your place. No, well, we're on a, a bit of a hill, not a not a big hill, but uh-huh. we look out over Western Port Bay. Okay. So That's we're nice. on a high spot in our area, mm-hmm. but not really a hill, if that makes sense. <laughs> You're on the peninsula, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, very good. Yeah. So what's it been like down there weather-wise? And uh, very rain, dry, dry yeah. now. Um, very wet leading up till Christmas and, and then very dry pretty much since it's been... A real contrast, and it looks feels to me as if it's going to going to keep on being dry for a while. To the forecasters are saying we're in for a dry autumn, so uh, yeah, we're going to have to concentrate on keeping some moisture in our soil. Yeah, actually, Ray was digging in a uh, one of those in ground worm composting things. Okay, is that this is the latest in our war on rats? 
Oh, so yes. I dug it into one bed. So these are ones that you, if people don't know, you dig a very deep hole and uh, bury them mm-hmm. and you put all of your compost scraps into that with the idea being that the worms are able to access those composts and come out into the veggie garden surrounds and um, everybody's happy. But uh, the bed that I put it in was pretty dry and quite sandy and of course the rats just went ha ha this, that's brilliant I'll just dig through here so the first night they dug underneath and it was about 40 centimeters deep mm. they dug underneath so the next day uh, Ray put bricks all around it no nah, that did not give a damn all the compost strewn all over the place so oh we've, we've moved it to a different spot now but um it just in mm. coming back to what you were saying Penny about it being dry, dry. we did notice yeah. that yeah, after that uh, very wet start to mm. the summer, everything is now extremely dry. dry. Yeah. yeah, still a shocker for tomatoes and eggplants and <laughs> yes, all, all of those been, sorts of yeah. things. It's just been appalling there's, again. Just too cold in December. But it's also been, there's been a lot of disease and pest problems that I haven't seen before too. Right, right. yep. Yeah, particularly in the tomatoes. Ah, such mm. as? Um I always forget what it's called. Oh. But I've got <laughs> so the um, the budworm. Oh. I've never had budworm before, but I've had a lot of issues with with budworm. So mm-hmm. budworm burrows in the into the tomato, and mm. and it just destroys it. So you know, it's a moth, and it lays eggs, and the caterpillars um, burrow and create big cavities in the tomatoes before they've even had a chance to ripen. So you know, mm. you can't even take them off and ripen a bit of it. And, mm. So they get to it in the early stages yep. of the fruit set. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it and sort of rots around it, doesn't and, it? Yeah. yeah. And you end up with a with a with a big hole <clears throat> and and it, yeah and it rots. But um, I've been dealing with that by um, checking the tomatoes every day, couple of days, and just taking off the ones that have the holes in them. Yep. And you just take them off and put them in the rubbish. You don't put them in the compost because well, then they just... they hatch out and they. <laughs> Um, fly over to your other nice tomatoes and yeah so and um, is it just a, like a simple hole it, yes. yeah it's a feature? it's a little black hole yep yeah um so you you just need to pull them off and get rid of wow. them mm. and they obviously hatch and start munching before the tomato is ripe oh yeah when it's yep. green yeah i'm sitting here with a photo i've brought my book oh. in so that if people have tomato questions Karen's section on on all the pests and diseases of um, tomatoes is the best I've ever seen anywhere, and there's this photo of what exactly what it looks like mm. if a budworm's got into it. So, mm. yeah, and what the caterpillar looks like and what the hole looks like. So, mm. any thoughts on why they're prevalent this year? I, I just think it's been a, a perfect year for all sorts of insects. I mean, the the nice side of it is I've had the most amazing dragonfly swarm. Yeah, mm. yes, uh, as well. Um, yeah. So that, you know, you're getting other those insects, but you're also getting some really mm. beautiful ones. And you just, you know, it's, mm. it's really sad when you've got a crop that you were hoping for that would be so, a really good crop. Yeah, butterflies as well. Yes. I haven't seen so yeah. many butterflies in a really oh, long yeah. time. Oh. Totally. We've got a really long driveway, long, what is it, 200, 250 metres, and mm. it essentially goes through the bush, and you have to drive at two kilometres an hour up it because there's thousands of the butterflies, butterflies yeah. everywhere yeah. just hanging out. Yeah, so, but you it's been a great year. Butterflies come from caterpillars. And this oh, is- yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Stop killing Okay, them. do we love them? I'm oh, not sure. Dang. Yeah. So it depends on the butterfly, but look, that's what I mean. You've got to you've got to cope with 
you yeah. get the beautiful things, but you also have to cope with the things that you hate. Yeah, yeah it's good and bad because, uh, you know, being cool, so our autumn raspberries are so much better this year as they were yeah. last year, as they were the yeah. year before because they don't get cooked through yep. January when yep. they're really young. Yeah. Um, uh, you've got to keep mm. the water up to them now mm. because it's been dry, so they fill out. But, you know, we've got fabulous raspberries again, which in the warmer years mm. you struggle with. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, they put on yeah. so much growth through the early spring and then they mm. struggle to hold that and, mm. and fruit. Yep. Yeah. And and just growth more generally from all the, mm. uh, the water and the rain in in, um, in early summer. Mm. Mm. Everything's grown more. Yeah. Know, I have to, I've got a, a bay tree that I prune and keep as a great big ball and it's twice mm. the size that it usually is. So <laughs> Very big I've ball. got to get up and um, do that fairly oh, soon you, before it gets yeah, out so of control. Yeah, so how tall... Do you keep it? Because I have one and it's out of control and I keep saying it's sucking all the moisture out of the veggie area. And um, Yeah, look, I've, mine, mine is probably a bit bigger than I wanted it to be, but I'm keeping it at about three metres. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, you, and then and, you've and tapered trunk, it into a, a trunk ball. Down, and I just create a, create a big ball. Yeah. Yeah. And I assume you use all the leaves when you prune it off, or um, some of them. Well, I'm. Uh, yeah. How many can you use? Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I put some at the front just for people to take with a sign on them, and, and the rest of them yeah. I generally mulch. Yep. Yeah, and they go back into the garden. Mm. So, very mm. good. Mm. Stephen, do you have uh, veggies or produce in your court? No, um, I had for a period of time. Mm-hmm. I had. Um, I have a, a small space that I use predominantly for summer. Mm-hmm. Um, in winter, it was shaded um, yep. because of the aspect that it was in. So it was really uh, a summer adventure mm-hmm. um, and a bit of a, a pick-and-eat sort of salad veggie patch um, when I did do it. But um, I decided that it wasn't actually uh, producing enough for the effort that I was putting into it yep. for the space that I had. Um, and then it progressed onto being a perennial garden. And then it progressed on to being another form of garden as I <laughs> evolved enough. my garden. Um, but, yes, so you have had um, in the past. Yeah. Mm. I sometimes think it's easier to have a produce garden in the burbs than it is when you've got a lot of greenery around you because there's just so many things that want to eat, eat it. Yeah. yeah. And I just think, ah, yeah. oh, just move to the burbs if you want to have a garden. <laughs> Well, yes and no, the burbs, those wonderful possums, they do love veggies. Oh, oh, that's so true. I have a single rose. Um, It's supposed to be a climbing rose. I'm sure it'll eventually climb. Um, And I bought it because it's just this beautiful dusky pink and and smelly and, of course, I've forgotten its name. But it butted up, was just opening up and the smell was just starting to come. And who got to it but the ringtails, of course. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. they are very cute, so I forgive them. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, there's there's uh, not a lot that um, critters don't eat. Yeah. So talking about moths too, I, I put some photos to Liz that will go on the Instagram um, of codling moth. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, I have never had so many codling moths. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, we've never had them in the pears. Mm. Or, yeah. Often mm. a few here and there in the apples. but. Mm. In the pears, they've just been extraordinary. They've had a great year. Mm. (laughs) I think they've had a few rotations. Well, that's interesting. Moth Mm. and moth in the tomatoes. I wonder if it's the wet early start to summer that had something to do with it. Yeah, I think it's the extra moisture, I'm sure. I can't can't resist. I just had this split-second thought of I can just imagine the moths on their radio show going, (laughs) oh, my goodness, we're having the best year ever. (laughs) 
we've had so many years of just you know, struggles, and this is the best year we've yeah. had with the getting the, the pears are great, the tomatoes are great. We're yeah. getting into them yeah. all. Just be careful of that woman on the peninsula. <laughs> <laughs> so, Evan, with the coddling moth, what has been like? What are some of the symptoms that people would look for in that? Well, you see the the frass that uh, well, you see a little hole um, on the side of the fruit. Um, and where they when they exit, they they leave like sawdust mm-hmm. around the uh, around the hole, and then internally, of course, depending on mm-hmm. where they're at in their cycle, there's either a little critter in there, a little caterpillar. Yep. Um, but there's there's a, there's a little tunnel mm-hmm. going in, and they sort of feed towards the middle of the fruit. Um, I don't do anything about it. normally the chooks, but we're actually out of chooks at the moment. At the moment, and that could be part of the problem mm-hmm. because um, due to COVID, we sort of weren't replenishing the flock, mm-hmm. uh, and so they sort of all got elderly at once. Um, so you know that might be part of the problem because the chooks are fabulous. I think they're probably the best thing to keep codling moth out because yep. they overwinter, you know, under the bark and, and mm. in the ground and so on, and the chooks clean them up. Yep. So that could be part of the problem, but it, I think. Probably also just that it's been a, a ripper year for moths mm. and mm. and um, caterpillars and so on. And mm. I guess by the time they've made that little hole, it's all over. Well, the the fruit is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I you just, just eat, I just eat, around, eat it. around it. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just um, I guess the key is to keep a pocket knife in your pocket if you're out eating your apples, <laughs> <laughs> and you slice them open first, unless you want a little bit of extra protein. Um, so, uh, yeah, you just slice them open and they're fine. Mm, and, mm-hmm. and, and we tend to stew all the apples and pears and so on mm. uh, and freeze them. So it's it's a very easy process. Yeah. Mm. So you obviously don't net your trees? No. no. Uh, well, for birds we do mm-hmm. um, in that they've we've got like an old um, greenhouse, the hoops of an old greenhouse mm-hmm. that, that have um, chicken wire over the top. Uh, and so that that keeps the birds and the bats out. Yeah. Um, Do you have bats but down your way? We had a fig tree right ne- near the back door for quite a few years, and there was a bat at least that would come regularly and clean them up and just crap everywhere. <laughs> so <laughs> that tree's been moved on. Um, but yeah, you'd go out the back and you'd just hear it fly off. You know that woof woof mm. woof. As it would fly off. So, um, so we're talking fruit bats, fruit yeah, bats, not yeah. insectivorous bats. No, that's not, right. Not the micro ones. Yeah, we have lots of micro bats, and they're they're great. Yeah, they're you know, they zip around and pick up all those little moths and so on. <laughs> yes. So we want them. Yeah. No, they're big fruit bats, but we don't get mm. many. But certainly down uh, on you know sort of south of Berwick, you mm-hmm. do see them flying across. Okay. Uh, at the right time of the it's evening, so they're they're warming about. climate. I've mm. never seen one on the peninsula, right? So yep. they haven't made it down there yet. Mm. Don't like the seaside. <laughs> yeah, no, <I> don't know. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. Uh, very good. Well, this is the Three CR Gardening Show, and I'm in the studio this morning with Stephen Wells, Penny Woodward, and Evan Gorky. So I should probably get to a few community announcements because we've got a busy show and we've got a million community announcements. Uh, so get your pens ready, everybody. Uh, I found out last night that next weekend the Red Hill Agricultural and Horticultural Society is holding their show. So that's on the 11th of March and it's their 95th show, so Red Hill on the Mornington Peninsula. Uh, so I don't have any more information on that. I just saw it on my can Instagram. Can I just... Yes, um, you can. 
I was there at the show last year and mm-hmm. it was brilliant. It's a really good agricultural mm-hmm. show. So it's the classic show with all the veggies and all that sort of thing, but they're doing quite a lot of horticultural stuff as well. Yep. Um, and, you know, speakers and they, they're they doing wood chopping and they've got the sheep trials and dogs and all sorts of things. So Fantastic. So it's worth, really worth going and take, taking the kids or the grandkids or whatever. Yep, but no wood chopping. Yep. <laughs> Probably no wood chopping. Running out of timber. Okay, yeah, so on today we've got the Whittlesea Rotary Club has got the Whittlesea Garden Expo. That's on from 9am to 3pm at the Whittlesea Showgrounds. The guest presenters today are Chloe Thompson and Nathan Stewart. Nathan is a local beekeeper. There's botanical drawing, garden inspiration, flower paintings in oil, backyard beekeeping, Phone, macro photography, gardening tips, rose tips, kids potting spring bulbs and face painting. And our friends from Treasured Perennials will be there as well as there'll be lots of roses, uh, vertical garden displays, violets, gardening tools, garden art, bookstall, dogs on leads are okay. And that's $8 online, $10 at the gate, under 16 free. So that's the Whittlesea Garden Expo. Also on today, there's an Open Gardens Victoria Garden, a day out with dahlias. This is at Wurri Wright. I'm pretty sure I've pronounced that incorrectly. Uh, a historic property on the banks of Emu Creek in Terang. And Terang is 40 minutes the city side of Warrnambool. There's two sessions, 9am to 11am and 1 to 3pm. And there's only a few spots left in each. You will get the full address uh, when you actually book. It costs $120. It includes morning and afternoon morning or afternoon tea, a container and flowers. You can join passionate dahlia grower Sue Morrison in her beautiful Western Victorian garden, learn all about dahlias from the tubers and how to divide and store them to the best growing conditions and how to achieve the best blooms. It includes a demo on picking dahlias from Sue's massive cutting garden, followed by mastering the art of creating a beautiful table arrangement, which participants can then take home. So that's an open gardens, Victoria garden that's open today. Following on with more open gardens, Victoria gardens, the 11th and 12th of March, there's the edible garden at 20 Imperial Avenue in Mount Waverley from 10 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. This is Zofia's garden, which is almost fully sustainable. She generates her own electricity through sour panels as well as harvesting water within three water tanks. Chickens lay eggs and provide manure and rework the compost from kitchen waste, leaves and lawn cuttings. Uh, She's got a worm farm and ponds for edible water plants and habitat. And she's got beehives for pollination and honey. See, I told you, you've got to go to the burbs before you can have a real garden. (laughs) (laughs) She's got espalier apples, uh, citrus, pears, apricot, avocado, nectarine, big raised veggie garden, as well as no dig beds and all sorts of things. So she um, collects hard rubbish and repurposes them into uh, beautiful outdoor things. 
saving them from being destroyed and giving them a new life. And some of the proceeds of uh, the takings will be donated to the Ashwood Permaculture Garden. Uh, so that's next weekend, 11th and 12th of March. Uh, entry $10 for adults, $6 for students under 18 free. Another Open Gardens Victoria, again next weekend, 11th and 12th of March, the Cottage Garden to Lily Street in Glen Waverley, 10am to 4.30pm. Terry's Eclectic Garden on a suburban block has evolved since 1994 and is home to myriad roses, a variety of fruit trees, medicinal plants, share beds with perennials and native plants. Everything in the garden is designed to encourage birds, benefit beneficial insects and other wildlife and uh, terry uses tank water again ten dollars for adults six dollars for students under 18 free Uh, so for all uh, open gardens victoria gardens you can buy the tickets online or you can buy them at the gate 18th and 19th of march another open gardens vic garden is cape otway farm at 1300 Cape Otway Road in Motorware, which is sort of inland of Bells Beach, Torquay, that sort of area. A stunning modern take on the traditional rural garden. When Olivia Tipler and Daryl Pelchin bought the property 16 years ago, it was windswept cattle grazing farmland with a handful of established trees. With guidance from landscape architect Stephen Reed, they created a productive space, including a large vegetable garden and orchard with free-ranging chickens and ducks. They planted an incredible 20,000 indigenous trees and shrubs for windbreaks, which also provide a sense of seclusion to the wide open spaces. Stephen Reed will give a tour of the garden at 11.30am and 2.30pm on both days. $10 for adults, $6 for students, under 18 free. So that's the Cape Otway Farm in Motorware. Also next weekend, the Fernie Creek Horticultural Society has got their Plant Collectors Expo from 10am to 4pm at 100 Hilton Road in Sassafras. There'll be boutique sellers and rare plant sales, garden tools, botanical art, books, refreshments including a sausage sizzle, Kids activities on the Sunday, $10 entry, members and under 14 free. Uh, That was the Fernie Creek Horticultural Society. The Ballarat Begonia Festival is on from Saturday, March the 11th to Monday the 13th, which I think is Labor Day, from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Established in 1953, the Ballarat Begonia Festival is an innovative garden-based horticultural event that showcases Ballarat's natural assets, including its unique and rare collections of begonias. For 10 months of the year, the city of Ballarat's horticultural team has grown and nurtured thousands of begonias in over 500 varieties. Crikey. The impressive collection is the rarest in the Southern Hemisphere. The annual event is held in March and represents an authentic part of Ballarat's story. It is one of Ballarat's largest events, drawing thousands of visitors to the city. There will be garden talks by Garden Design award-winning landscape architect Natasha Morgan. There will be cooking demos by chef and TV host Mark Olive. And there will be chats about begonias and preparing your garden for sustainability uh, by Jerry Colby Williams. 
There'll be an aerial performance or aerial performances by Sway. Uh, had a look at those online. They're incredible. They're up on stilts and mm-hmm. swaying all over the place. Quite amazing. It's a botanical-themed one. There's also Tiny Town for Kids, markets, displays, food, drink and music. Lots of fun and that's free and pets are allowed on lead. So that's the Ballarat Botanical Gardens on next weekend. It's a fabulous setting too. When I had my nursery there in the 80s, I used to take part in that, have a stand there. And it's such fun. And the Begonia collection is just extraordinary. It's a beautiful setting, isn't it? Yeah, across the road from the lake. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. I did not know you had a nursery in Ballarat. Yeah, it was a herb nursery. Mm -hmm. For how long? Uh, About five years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you obviously yeah. lived there? I did, Yeah. yes. Fantastic. <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't trying to... <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> it, was, uh, yeah, it, just, it was bringing back memories of it and I yeah. actually ran it one year. So, I mean, but that was sort of... it was. I think it was a bit quieter then and yeah. it sort of fell in the doldrums a bit, but it was... Um, it's obviously going great guns. Yes. Yeah. You know, I know it's a really good event. So, Fantastic. And you can check out the Avenue of Prime Ministers. Oh. Which is amazing. What is that? Well, the, there's the head mm-hmm. on a stand of um, every Prime Minister, every Australian Prime Minister. Oh, so I could go and get my photo taken with Julia. You could, Excellent. indeed. <laughs> or Bob, <laughs> or, or Goff. You know, they're all there. <laughs> Excellent. In the Botanical Gardens area? Actually, in the Botanical oh. Gardens. So you, you walk from the greenhouse, the main greenhouse, yep. sort of down through the gardens, and the, it's an avenue of Prime Ministers. Mm, that's cool. Yeah. I like that. Yes. All right. Um, last one. Sunday the 19th of March <coughs> is Garden Relief Day. That's R-E-L-E-A-F. A program established by Garden Centres of Australia in 2014 that focuses on the benefits that plants and gardens provide to enrich our lives. Garden centres around Australia will be exploding with colour, fun activities and informative events for the whole family. At the same time, they'll be fundraising for Mito Foundation. Garden Relief promotes the benefits of surrounding yourself with living plants, enjoying time in the garden, savouring produce or fragrance produced from a garden, or simply being able to enjoy the fresh, clean air and calming view that gardens and living greenery provide. Research and studies continue to identify new ways that plants and gardens enrich our lives. Since 2015, Garden Relief has raised about 350000 for Beyond Blue. And uh, they say thank you to participating garden centres, key suppliers and customers for their remarkable support. So you can go to gardenrelief.com.au to find a participating garden centre near you. So that's on the Sunday the 19th of March. And this year's message is colour for health because gardens and colour are proven to be beneficial for positive mental health and well-being. And somebody who would know all about that is our Garden Relief Ambassador, who's in the studio this morning, Stephen Wells. Yes, <laughs> um, it's great. So I encourage everyone to get out um, to their garden centres. Mm-hmm. Um, the particular ones that you in your local area that are, that are doing things will be listed on the website, mm-hmm. the Garden Relief website. Um, and to, I know the day on the 19th is the, the um, a, a particular day for awareness and yep. for fundraising, but um, often they have um, aspects throughout the year um, to encourage all of those things. But yes, 
Absolutely, colour and vibrancy and um, also uh, green immersion. Mm-hmm. I often encourage people to remember that green is a colour. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you don't have um, specific colour, don't forget that green is a colour yep. um, in a garden. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly encouraging people to, to stop and um, just be a bit more aware of those aspects of what our gardens do for us, um, the benefits and um, not just take it for granted. Um, but in the process of that, encourage others and share the message of the value of our gardens. Yeah. Um, I, sorry, go No, on. no, you're right. I was just going to say, I actually didn't see how many garden centres that participate. Do you? Not quite top, a lot? I'm not sure yeah. off the top of my yeah. head, sorry. Um, but I know that they, on the website there they list um, and those that are connected with it. So you can see whatever's close to your area. Correct, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. And just talking about colour and linking in that connection, I know one of your uh, projects that you've recently finished is a mural and garden, small garden. Yes. For a yes. hospital space. So, yes, I work at Austin Health and one of the um, – over the last year, actually, we've been a bit of a focus with uh, some funding that we've had come through from the Department of Health for staff wellbeing. Uh, creating more spaces for our staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and one in particular that we did was this little pocket of um, a enclosed area underneath the buildings mm-hmm. um, that had been uh, unused and forgotten about. So we named it the Secret Garden. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a garden to start with, I can tell you that. Um, but what we've been able to achieve is to just freshen up that area, create some new seating spaces in there, fairly simple planting, um, in the space, but just recently have finished a, an amazing mural that we had planted, planted, painted. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm a gardener. It could plant, be, it could plant. have been planted because it is of. It is of some amazing, beautiful, uh, large flowers. Um, we've got the waratah, wattle. Um, there's a uh, what else have we got in there? Leucosperm, I think we've got in mm-hmm. there. Leucodendron, sorry, mm-hmm. um, and a beautiful big eastern spinebill mm-hmm. um, that Amanda Newman, who's the artist, um, has amazingly done. And it's oversized, so it's not just little flowers. It's big and mm. bold and colourful. Um, and one of the staff members, I was showing a staff member in there the other day, she was a bit despondent, I think, about something else elsewhere. And I went, oh, have you seen the secret garden just near where your office is? Um, and she's like, no. So I walked in showed her and she was like, oh my goodness, like her demeanour changed, her mood changed and she had a smile on her face and she went, wow, like this is going, wow. So just that impact of having a space that's been designated and included um, with these items like these, this wonderful mural that we put in as well, mm. it just makes a difference. So yeah, it, that was a really fun and rewarding for me just to have that moment of going, you know, this is why we're doing it. I, yep. That's why I'm doing it and involved with the team to create these spaces. But to have that real tangible introduction and have someone not not aware of it come into the space and just to see them change um, with the impact of what it, what we've achieved has just been great. Yeah, I guess because, of course, we all know that everyone in the health industry is doing it really tough at the moment it's just pretty full-on for them so to have those just little nooks where you could go and breathe quietly to yourself for two minutes or that sort of thing yeah and it's been really interesting over the last few years because obviously in a healthcare setting our focus is primarily on patients and the Mm -hmm. needs of patients Mm -hmm. um, and then their families that come in and, and use the space as in our facility as well in that context but not we haven't dis 
counted and um, forgotten about staff, but it's not usually been the, the primary focus. But there's been an increased awareness of what we need to do for staff as well. Yep. And that's broadly in most organisations, but just that value mm. of going, no, that's... So I know that whenever I'm creating garden spaces over the years that I've been doing it in the hospitals, for me it's threefold. It's mm. patients, visitors, staff. Mm-hmm. It's all, all three, mm. um, all equally important and necessary for various reasons. Um, so it's been really good to, to do a little bit more of a concerted effort in the last couple of years. Yeah, and you say that, like, and people can go to your Instagram and have a look at that, can't they? That's that's where I noticed it. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. So that's Stephen Wells, the gardener. Mm-hmm. Nice and simple. Yep. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so it's been um, yeah, it's been really cool. Uh, uh, really excited to put it in, but also to hear some of the engagement that's coming out of. Um, it being installed. Yeah, and wonderful. is it undercover? It, it's partial, so it's undercover and open. Yeah, it's under sitting underneath the balcony, but also there's an open space as well. So, so with these types of spaces that you develop, who looks after them? So we it's a we have our garden contractors on um, on site. Mm-hmm. Um, so an external company that looks after our gardens, um, and they're great. Um, but I so there's also so they do it, but also myself at times. But it's also a very good question to ask because that tips into my wonderful, wonderful thing that I, I think a lot of people forget: maintenance. Mm. Um, so I've got to be very careful about what plants I put in mm-hmm. in this environment because yep. we don't. While we do have contractors um, that do our garden maintenance, they don't have a lot of time to finesse. They look after the grounds, the, the, the shrubs, the grass, the lawns areas and do that brilliantly. But um, when we're putting in new garden spaces, it's really important to be mindful of who, what plants go in. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to have more botanical garden kind of feel to places and yep. spaces, but the reality is we don't have the capacity to look after that. So it's about looking at what plants go in um, and materials, mm-hmm. um, furniture, structural things as well, because it's about... What, what might things cost long-term yep. to maintain and sustain them. Um, so hence, coming back to the mural context, for me, that's a wonderful part to include in the in the context of a space because you don't need to do anything to it for a long period of time and it still gives you, um, particularly in this context, flora and fauna mm-hmm. connection yep. um, and um, adds to the space mm. and is contextual to the space as well. Yeah, beautiful. It's interesting because one of my roles, as you guys will know, is Hort Editor of Gardening Australia magazine, and I get to read all the emails that come in. And uh, one of the emails was from the Rainbow Hospital. So Rainbow is in northwest Victoria, and they sort of have a um, a sort of a retirement village slash hospital up there and they had this small space sort of going around the length of um, the building and like um, many of the spaces you would deal with Stephen it was quite miserable and they contacted me and said is there anything that we can do so I ended up doing a design for them and I said look I'll only do a design if I can use all native plants and they were up for that so uh did the design they were happy with it and uh, Ray and I took a bit of a road trip up there one weekend and took all the plants up and uh, I laid them out and then they planted them and every now and again they send me photos Excellent. and uh, you know it's just so beautiful that they did exactly what I asked yep. and it just looks incredible and now 
all the residents look out onto these beautiful gardens that are starting to bring in the birds. Yep. So it doesn't take much, no, especially yeah. when people are dedicated. Correct. And I think that's the thing um, for people to, to be mindful of is that it doesn't need to be a huge, expansive space or a lot of um, input. It just needs some input and yep. a good bit of guidance to start off with. Um, and, yeah, you can achieve a lot. And <clears throat> what you just said then about the context of the residents looking out onto it yep. and seeing the birds, seeing life happen and changes in seasonality around what happens outside is really important, particularly in a space like that, um, for them to have had that change from being a bland space to now being an opportunity for them to be a momentary distraction or yep. momentary involvement to see you know, a bird come in or the birds come in and what that might do around the flowers, if it's nice native flowers, they'll see that and have that moment of enjoyment, yeah. um, whereas before it was just static and yeah. nothing. Nothing. Um, it's brilliant. Yeah, and also, of course, many of them come from gardens. Correct. From having their own garden and interacting with the garden that way. And all of a sudden, imagine us all of a sudden not being able to be in a garden. Like It would kind of uh, be very sad, wouldn't it? Mm. Yeah. Yes, well. Yeah, it's certainly good for psychology. And, and that's why, because we do a lot of school design. Yeah. Um, and it's really important. It's a little bit what, like what you say. So once these schools are built, because we do green, you know, green um, areas, um, greenfield sites. Yes. There's nothing there. Yeah. And um, if you look at it, it's schools maybe through the seventies and eighties, not much in the way of vegetation. Mm. And we know that it calms kids. Yeah. Uh, and staff and visitors, just exactly what you're saying. Um, so, you know, we, we will now put in 500-odd trees into a school site. Yeah, good. Now, that would have been unheard of mm. years ago. Yeah. Um, but you can imagine in 20 years' time, there will be so many of these schools that will have amazing canopy over them um, that kids will be walking under and engaging yeah. with nature. Um, uh, so it's it's super important in, in all sorts of fields and clearly in hospitals, but yeah. also also in schools. It's it's such a you know, it's one of those things that I reflect on often and go, it's a it's a staple in life, but it's not something that we often reflect on. It's just you know you walk past the green mm. space and go, it's just there. You don't even for those that aren't in tune with it, they're not aware. But subconsciously, it's actually having a lot of impact. Absolutely for us, um, whether it's a you know a public space or a private space, mm -hmm. what you have around you does impact you. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really good to that there's more conversation around um, the benefits, um, the psychological benefits, the physical benefits, the emotional benefits of having green space and canopy and mm. um, edible gardens, native gardens, anything that's um, and particularly in different settings like healthcare and education. Mm. Mm. I feel like, and I'm not sure if it's just, because I'm becoming more aware of it, but there's a lot more gardens going into schools and kids being involved, uh, veggie gardens yep. and um, um, traditional gardens like um, First Nations, cultural gardens, mm. bush food gardens, those sorts of things. <coughs> yeah, absolutely. Do, do I, the, well, the school building authority that we, you know, we, we're mostly working with them. So, you know, every year they build about eight to ten schools. Like, you don't realise that. That's how many are being built. So every year. Um, and, uh, are those just the state schools? State schools. That, yeah, so that doesn't yep. even include the Catholic schools and the, all the other. That's right. There's a lot yeah. more than that. It's extraordinary mm. numbers. 
Um, and, and, you know, they're, they're just going out every year. Yep. Mm. And we've been doing them since about 2019. Um, and it is, it's just super important to have that connection with nature. And, and we do have con- Indigenous consultations as part of yep. the, um, the design process. Yep. Um, and they're really beneficial. So we're looking at plants that might have been there trying to build in um, features into the landscapes that, that connect people with nature. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it might be the shape of a sandpit, yep. for example. It might be the shape of a short-finned eel or yep. uh, of a blackfish or something like that. Um, it might be the way the decking's shaped. It might not just be a square decking. It might be a flowing deck. Um, you know, the, the the paving that comes in, it, it, we try to make them feel like, you know, rivers so that the, it, it's, it's all flowing and, and, and curving through, which is, a, which is like bringing and then you add the greenery onto it. Yeah. Mm. So it's about creating that calmness rather than the rigidity of squares and right-angled turns. Um, it it makes that, a big difference. But the Indigenous consultation as part of that is really, really important. Yeah. That excites me because they're not, they're not uh, organic shapes aren't cheap. Um, as in... Yeah, compared to the square blocks, From a project pavings. point of view, yep. often the budgetary restraints are there. Yeah. Um, so that... Um, and it's about pushing beyond that. So I'm really excited to hear that as part of what you're doing. That's true. There's, there's been um, some... Decent improvements, though, in the way landscapes get set out. Yep. So, for example, we don't even really do set-out plans anymore yep. because everything's GPSed off, off our CAD drawings. So they can go around with a stick uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and put points. So if they're producing a curve, they can just put points that it is related off the, off the CAD drawing. Yep. So it's, it's very different to how That's it used crazy. to be. It used to be very... Reliant on the contractor doing a great job at getting you know the perfect curve. Now they just they just go around with a stick and mark them. Yeah. So yep. things have changed. So yep. it's it's not as expensive as great. it used to be, which is which is also encouraging. Yeah, great. Mm. That's incredible, Evan. Mm. It's been around a fair while now, it? but so it's, that's but something it's... you chart on the drawings as you're doing it, I assume. Well, the drawings just are essentially GPSed. Right. So so then they just take those CAD drawings and and. And they they put them into their system, and that three Ds it onto the, you know, okay. So there's a civil drawing that that sort of is a model. Yep. And all the paving and so on is modelled off that drawing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same with a football oval. So you might sometimes see a football oval being built, and it's got a curve in the middle. Yep. So that curve is is on a drawing, and then they triangulate it. And the machine goes around and actually has the front of it moving up and down in accordance with what it's reading off those um, uh, little gadgets, mm-hmm. whatever they are, and that gets the perfect shape. That's how you get a perfect shape oval. It's not done by eye. Uh, it's absolutely done to, to the millimetre. Yeah. Mm. Incredible. Yeah. Gosh. Stephen, where's the space at the Austin that you've just done? Um, so it's near... Uh, underneath uh, the Flanders wing, mm-hmm. um, which is one of our patient um, wings. Um, so it's in the internal building uh, area of the hospital. Yep. Um, so we're, the corner, reference-wise, it's off of Waterdale Road um, in Heidelberg. Yep. Um, so, yeah, it's, we've, it's positioned underneath um, one of the patient 
uh, wings and so there's a lot of staff and patients that use the space. Oh, lovely. And are visitors allowed to visit? Yeah, so essentially, yes. Yeah, so as in the garden space? Yeah. Yeah, so um, it's bit hard to describe how to get to it on radio yeah that's true <laughs> go in and ask someone and hopefully it is they know away and, it's, yeah. and, and it's the irony of the, the term secret garden is that it is probably hard <laughs> yes. to find and it's <laughs> if staff right next to it aren't aware of the space yeah um, very secret it's 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 one of those things you tell people then it don't, doesn't become a secret but <laughs> only Stephen knows uh, about it um but yeah so the challenge might be that if people do come in and have a look for it they might it, there won't be a big sign saying the secret garden mm-hmm. um and some people may yet not know where it is but it's underneath the flanders wing oh, so how do staff find out about it communication uh internal comms um i share a bit of stuff um through that yeah um which is great um word of mouth um is good Mm. The ripple effect of word yep. of mouth, um, good relationships with people on site, and you say, "Oh, have you been to?" And then they go, "Oh, they go and have a look at it." Then they tell someone, and then they tell someone. Yep. Um, so yeah, we use avenues like that. Mm. I like the timber furniture that you've used in it. Yeah, I wanted it to be like for one, it's a, a solid, um, solid piece, so yep. it's um, sturdy, um, but also a little bit more um, organic in that sense of putting. Furniture around is a bit of a challenge. Uh, well, challenge is not the right word. Um, the uh, aspect of working at what works and yep. what is suitable mm. and then what's durable yep. um, are some of the um, parameters that we have to work within. Mm-hmm. So I've used other types of furniture around the sites of late, um, yep. just finding things that suit the site, suit the different locations rather than um, one size fits all. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Someone has texted in to say, good morning, bay leaves are good at deterring pantry moths. Uh-huh. Yes, which makes total sense. More than that, they also deter silverfish and um, I put them in between all, all my books and mm. and um, papers and in with documents and, um, so, and pantry moths and clothes moths and... Um, at the moment, I'm also putting them around the edges of some rooms because we've got carpet moth as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> Just for fun. You've got so to be prepared to put up the bay leaves everywhere in people's houses, is what you're saying. It's yes. not that you yeah. just drop them during yeah. the cooking. No, <laughs> no, no. You've been very particular. I, yeah. I wouldn't so, be without my bay, bay yeah. tree. So is it the... Um, the fragrance of it? Yeah, it's yep. the It's, it's not the a chemical scent. or it's not part of the... No. What, what they make? What's in you, them? You, well, I mean, it is, but it is the, it's the fragrance, and that's why you've got to replace them every couple of years if you're putting them in amongst your books or your papers or Great. But, yeah, if you put one in, in a jar of flour and the jar of pasta, and the, if you just put one in each, yep. that will stop the pantry moth too. Brilliant. Fantastic. Well, this is the 3CR Garden Show. I'm A.B. Bishop, and with me in the studio are Penny Woodward, Evan Gorkey, and Stephen Wells. Going to invite listeners to join in now, even though I selfishly want you all to myself. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you can call in on 94190155, or you can text us on 0488 809. Eight double five, and I'm just going to play a little community announcement encouraging people to become a subscriber. Subscribe to 3CR. Where else can you hear radical news, analysis, music, and opinions? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe 
or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Thank you, 3CR. We love you. Stephen, the person who had uh, texted in before to ask where the uh, the garden is has texted back saying that's brilliant. Under Flanders was such a creepy place. I know exactly <laughs> where Stephen is talking about. Excellent. Well, nice to know that we're changing the creepiness of the area. <laughs> Absolutely. Do not want creepiness in the hospital. <laughs> oh, so, Penny, let's um, have a chat. It is garlic Time, is it not? Or almost garlic planting time? Yeah, it's a bit early bit for early. planting, but yeah. there's been a lot happening. Do you know what? Garlic. Can I just quickly say, it's yeah. because in my head, with the job that I do, I work two months ahead. Yes. So I'm thinking, yeah. oh, know that it's feeling. April. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, look, some of the early garlics can go in at the end of March, mm-hmm. um, but most of them are planted April, May. Mm-hmm. Um, and some into some of the some groups you can plant in early June, um, but yeah, it's been very garlicky the last couple of months because we've had the Manian Garlic Festival two weeks ago, mm-hmm. which was brilliant. Um, they had to cancel for the last three years, so this was the first one for some time. And then ten days before that, we had garlic judging. So growers from um, all around Australia sent in garlic to be judged. Um, so that and was. And how do you judge garlic? Yeah, how do you judge um, garlic? Well, being the head judge, yes. I'm the right person to tell you. Um, look, it's something that we sort of invented about ten years ago, and we were doing it. We were doing it for the um, Royal Agricultural Society. They, um, we were judging garlic for them, and because I've been involved with the Australian Garlic Industry Association for years, um, we sort of nutted out how it should be done at that time. So um, with this particular judging, we only judged raw garlic. And so the growers had to send in three bulbs of one particular cultivar. Yep. Um, and you judge each set of garlic on their own merits. You're not comparing them with the other garlics that, that are there. So you being a garlic grower and eater and all that sort of thing, you know in your head what is a what is a good garlic. So it's um but the first thing you do is you look at the the three bulbs sitting there and you see if if they they are all a similar size and they all look healthy sort of from the outside and you give that a score out of ten. Um, and then you um, you look at the health of it, and so you sort of peel off a couple of skins, and quite often or sometimes you'll see um, black mould, so little bits of sooty in sootiness in there, which garlic is prone to, and it's been a bad year this year because of all the water. Um, so you you score that sort of external look of the plant. Of the bulb, of the bulb, pulling apart at least two of the bulbs to make sure that they're all in reasonably good nick, um, and that's out of twenty. Then you actually pull it apart and you look at the inside, and again you're looking for sort of conformity and to make sure that there hasn't been a whole lot of um, external sprouting. So quite often when you get weird weather effects, the um, skins on the outside of each clove start growing. And you get a whole lot of these extra greenery coming up the middle and that's called brooming or side sprouting because it's the side um, leaves that are that are shooting. Um, and all of those sort of, you 
take have to take a bit of the score off. Then you peel the garlic, and again, quite often when you do that, if there's some disease in there, you'll be seeing that on the actual clove, and they lose points for that. Um, and then you smell it, and you you score the aroma out of twenty. And then the final one is you eat it. So you put it into your mouth and you chew it. Um, I learnt after the first judging that you don't swallow it because you end up with a terrible stomach. Oh, I'm sure you would. When you've eaten about, you know, part, part of 40 or 50 cloves oh. of garlic. Um, and and it's often that aroma, the aroma, sorry, not the aroma, the flavour is the most important part because some garlics are intensely hot right at the beginning and then there's sort of nothing afterwards. Other garlics can be hot or quite mild. They can, as you hold it in your mouth, the, the heat can build um, and then they can, as the as over the next, you know, the next minute, it then slowly dissipates, but you get a sort of a fruity flavour or a creamy flavour or, you know, you, there's huge variation in the, in the flavours. Um, and this year, we for the first time, I'd never tasted them before, we actually had some porcelain group garlic and that's garlic that's grown mainly in um, in the northern parts of um, Canada mm-hmm. and Poland and places like that so it loves extreme cold and it has a really it has a higher sulfur content so some of them are quite sulfury but there are others that have this fabulous heat um, without too much sulfur and it just I have never tasted such complex um, and equally hot garlics. They were they were just beautiful. So it was wonderful to try those for the first time. Um, and it, yeah, it was a it was a really good process because we're trying to get this back happening again, so that um, garlic growers and this is commercial growers have a have a um, a, a, something to compare against all the time, yep. um, and 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 people who want to buy garlic know who's winning medals. Mm. Um, so it'll be. I hope it'll take off. And we were we we're actually doing it at William Anglis, so um, it was really interesting because some of the chefs and the students were coming past, and they were wanting to talk about it. And mm. um, at the the um, chair of uh, AGIA actually stood up and did a uh, off the cuff talk to the to the chefs and and a couple of the chefs said three hundred different types of garlic. <laughs> <laughs> I thought there was only one, you know. So obviously there's a lot of education that we need that needs to be done. Is it right well. that there's eleven groups? Yes. Yes. Eleven so groups. Eleven groups. So when you judge, do you say, okay, this group should be blah blah blah? Should yeah. have this well, we sort know, of taste? Yes. And we actually put the garlics into the groups mm-hmm. to judge them. So we did all the turbans together, we did all the artichokes together, we did all the but we weren't comparing them, but it's just it's good to see the range within the group. Um, as well, because all sorts of things affect the flavour of garlic. It's it's the soil it's grown in, it's the temperatures it's grown in, it's the way it's cured. You know, it's a whole range. So some of the garlics coming from Tasmania, in fact, some that did really really well, um, it was still had a sort of um, a fruity flavour that meant that they weren't finished curing. But that's really hard for them because not only was it a really wet year, but 
they harvest much later. So um, to have it cured by beginning of February was quite hard. Um, so yeah, it was. Do you a, take that into account, or do you uh, still mark them down? Um, it, look, it's a tricky one. It, it, this year, I think we took it into account mm-hmm. because we knew what a tough year it was for everyone. But it probably lost a, a couple of points, but it didn't make any difference. They still got gold medals. So mm. in the end, <laughs> how many <laughs> entrants were, were there? Flow, there were forty this mm. year. So yeah, so there were forty different garlics that we that we. Tested. And can home gardeners enter? No. Okay, so it's only for commercial yeah. growers. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. That's a lot. Then. We couldn't do home gardeners as well. Too much. I just yep. you know took all day to do to <laughs> do these. What this is reminding me is that I need to slow down when I eat. Like you do. I just eat too quickly. Like yep. when you're hearing you talk about the flavours, and you get, and it reminds me of other things where you go to testings or tastings, mm. and when you actually just keep it in your mouth. For longer, mm. you actually yes, it is the case that it does have the flavours and it's yeah. different over over the time mm. that it's in your mouth, and mm. it's like oh gosh, I need to slow down. Mm. <laughs> I do that with tomatoes now. So at this yeah. time of the year, every time I get a tomato out of the garden, no matter what I'm doing with it, I'm tasting it to see you know yeah. what it's get the and it's I mean it's a joy anyway. Yeah. But mm. yeah, you do need to hold it in your mouth just a little bit and you know taste them raw and. Yeah. I wonder if the garlic gets nervous when you come along. <laughs> Probably. Oh, it might taste good for Penny. <laughs> <laughs> and when people say, you know, what about the smell? I mean, the answer to that is you get everyone around you to eat garlic. <laughs> absolutely. It doesn't matter. Absolutely. Yeah, yes. yeah, absolutely. Penny, people are texting in with questions. Someone has said, my hanging garlic has gone soft and brown. Can I still use it in my cooking? Uh, probably not. It depends on the cause for the softened brownness, but if it also smells, then definitely not because it means it's got fusarium in it um, and it tastes disgusting and the whole bulb is disgusting. But um, anything that's gone soft and brown, um, I don't think so. But look, try it. And if it tastes all right, then it will be all right to use. Yep. But um, if it has a horrible smell with it too, I wouldn't touch it. What makes it go soft and brown? Yeah, it's just not stored properly. Usually, usually oh, wet. yeah. Look, it's um, fusarium is around in in the air, um, so that if you garlic needs to be stored in somewhere where you've got plenty of air movement and um, no direct sunlight and reasonable and not too much moisture in the air, so you would never store it in the kitchen. Um, it's okay for something that you're going to be using in a, in a in a couple of weeks, but you wouldn't hang a string of garlic in the kitchen because you get steam in there all the time. Yeah. Um, I use a spare bedroom. So okay. once I've cured them outside under cover with a lot of air movement around, I move them inside, particularly at this time of year because the moisture is increasing in the mm-hmm. air um, and you need to get them somewhere where where there's not too much moisture in the air. All right, so thanks for that, Penny. We're going to come back to garlic questions, uh, but for now we're going to go to Chris and Dingley. Good morning, Chris. Yeah, thanks. Um, look, um, I was wondering whether it's the right time now to plant broad beans and peas. And just a, a separate question, um, what would be good vegetable seedlings to put in now when with autumn coming? Thanks. Um. Yeah, look, I I always plant my broad beans later because I find that they don't actually 
in my climate, they don't actually produce a lot of fruit until spring anyway. So they're taking up quite a lot of space in your garden. Um, and, yeah, they, they don't flower and, and fruit, but it may be different where, where you are. Um, I, you could certainly... I mean, you're getting to the point where you could be putting any of the brassicas in. Uh, I, w again, would wait a little bit because there's still an awful lot of cabbage moths around. I mean, mm. one of the lovely things about our climate is that it's cold enough in winter so you don't have to worry about about cabbage moths. Um, and carrots, beetroot. Um, mm. Yeah, there's, there's radishes you can always put in. What about... Yeah, what lettuce. Yes, lettuce. Yes. Yeah, 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 the cabbages, the red cabbages... Yeah. Red cabbages are great, um, great value. Mm. Um, I agree with the the, the broad beans. It, it's you can put them in and you can eat the tops off yes. them as yeah. you go through, but um, there's no great advantage and they just become mm. massive before they start flowering. Mm. Uh, so I tend to hold off as well to more you know closer to spring, I suppose, and then they just rocket away and fruit pretty mm. quickly. What, what about cauliflowers? Yeah, yeah, cauliflowers. But again, I'd just be a bit cautious with this hot, dry weather that we're mm. still having. Um, you might need to wait mm. a few weeks. But that gives you time oh, yeah. to prepare the soil really well. It gives you a few weeks yeah. to yeah. do that, put and that to, effort and in. And to put the seed in somewhere yep. um, and then you've got seedlings to plant mm. out. Yep. I just want to point, uh, uh, when you're talking about the community gardens, you mentioned a place called Mottaware. It's pronounced Motty Warren. Oh, yeah. thank you for that. Great. Now we know. Oh, Probably in the same place. Yeah. <laughs> Good on you. Thanks so much for that, Chris. Terrific. Uh, now, we're all gardeners and many of us love the benefits of composting, one of those being able to reduce our impact on landfill. And Aussies throw out 7.3 million tonnes of food scraps every year and that's about 300 kilograms per person, which is quite incredible. On the line with us now is someone who is passionate about reducing this waste, Helen Steele from Eco Guardians, which is a company all about managing food waste simply and sustainably. Welcome, Helen. Good morning. Thank you, AB. Ah, now you, where are you calling in from today? Um, I'm actually in the beautiful Hobart. Oh, <laughs> lovely. Morning. Oh, and yes. how is it down there? Um, it's actually quite humid. It's, uh, yeah, building up for storms, I think, um, this afternoon. Uh, so, yeah, it kind of feels so Hobart. It's very humid, which is, which is definitely not usual. No, not at all. Not at all. I'm sure it's still beautiful. Uh, now, we're lucky enough to have you on the show this morning because you know uh, one of our guests, Evan Gorky, and um, <laughs> I hear it was quite an interesting meeting. Um, one, one could call it a meeting that was a bit on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> and Evan. Um, so, so, yes, Evan and I are neighbours down in Summers, actually, on the Mornington Peninsula. And I, I knew that um, Evan was a landscape architect, but um, a few weeks ago, well, he, he's, a, he's embarked on uh, quite a, a, um, a, a massive undertaking, I think, to sort of dig up his, his uh, nature strip and... He's been very busy in digging that up, and, and then he applied some beautiful compost uh, to his nature strip. And <laughs> it was very uh, raw. All the neighbours knew about it. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, I did underestimate the, uh, the odour on that. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I think, well, 
Well, I think it was my dog. My dog in particular is very interested, <laughs> uh, and still is, actually. Um, and then I can't get him past unless he's on the lead. Uh, <laughs> what is in that compost? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't make it. I hold no responsibility. <laughs> so um, in response to the, the delicious um, compost that, that Evan was um, applying, I, I, I popped up. I popped down to my house and came back and said, here, try this, <laughs> which was um, the soil food that, that Eco Guardians produces. And he looked at me very sceptically, but he, he decided to take it on. And, and anyway, here I am. Fantastic. Now, Helen, I just want to give listeners a bit of a background about yourself. You grew up in northeast Victoria and you're one of yes. six kids. And within your family, it was uh, sustainability, sustainability, Living sustainably was very important, as well as recycling and growing your own food. And now you're really passionate about uh, biodiversity and birds. So to me, it makes sense that um, the role you're in now as a circular economy expert uh, with more than 20 years international experience across all sorts of sectors, I guess your childhood helped lead you down that path? Absolutely, AB. So I grew up in Rutherglen in northeast Victoria and, and my parents, um, even back in the early 80s, I mean, we had solar panels on our roofs um, and I guess just the way, you know, we lived, it was, just, it was just very different. We were always recycling. We had, you know, not only the composting bin, but we had the chook bin. Um, so, you know, the scraps that would go to the chooks. Um, yeah, and we just grew, grew our own uh, vegetables and fruit and, and had our own eggs and, and, and our own meat very often as well. Um, and, you know, mum, you know, we recycled clothes. Everything got ha- passed down between the six children. Um, so it was just, you know, it was just a different way of living. And I guess just being in the country, I mean, you didn't have access to lots of things. Um, you know, mum sewed, when we, particularly when we were little, you know, all of our own clothes and and so it was just kind of a part of um, my growing up. And um, even my, my grandmother, you know, she was a field naturalist. So I think that there was definitely a lot of interest, particularly with birds and nature, that, that came from my grandmother as well. But it was just kind of inherent um, to my growing up that that sustainable thread has kind of ran, run through my life. And how, well, first of all, what is a circular economy expert? Well, I'm not sure what a circular economy expert is, but I can tell you what a circular economy is. So, you know, very much the way that we that we live, um, you know, we we produce something, we manufacture something, we use it, and then we often, very often, discard it. And that's kind of a linear way of um, a, a linear process, if you will. But the circular economy, what it's trying to do is just keep, um, you know, products and materials continually in a loop so that we're not producing new products and materials. And so that the way that we're doing that is through reusing, recycling, upcycling, and just, you know, keeping those products um, in, a, in the loop as long as possible. I mean, things do eventually wear out and, and you can't repurpose and, and recycle everything. But it's kind of that concept of just keeping everything in, in a circular loop, if you will, um, so that we, you know, eliminate waste, um, and, and, you know, and we put a more emphasis on thinking about, you know, biodiversity and, and nature as well. Yeah, yeah, that absolutely makes a lot of sense. And what did you study to uh, sort of go down this path? <laughs> um, well, in terms of study, I, I guess, you know, um, my, my academic study, which was, which was a BA, which was probably not particularly helpful, 
Um, but, you know, subsequently I've, I've learned a lot about, um, you know, the interactions between business and society. I mean, that's kind of been very much the focus of my, of my um, career the last 15 years. Um, and really sort of thinking a sort of bigger picture about what, you know, what are the role, what's the role of business, particularly in helping solve social issues? What are the social issues that can be solved, um, you know, through a commercial, through a commercial lens? Um, and that's kind of really what led me to um, the circular economy uh, discussion. Um, it was a lot of work that I did whilst I was with um, an organisation called the Shared Value Project. And we did, um, it, so my circular economy uh, conversation really started with plastics and packaging, which a lot of people associate the circular economy with. Um, but then I was really interested in other things like how, you know, clothing and textiles and, and houseware goods get recycled. So I've done a few different projects over the years mm-hmm. um, because, yeah, sort of very interested in this um, reusing, recycling, upcycling concepts. So I guess I've just really built that knowledge through my through my working career, but you know, attending lots of uh, sessions and seminars, and and you know, there's lots of fantastic information about the circular economy, um, you know, online, and and and, and there's so much, um, you know, yeah, uh, um, articles and all sorts of things that people can can can. Um, you know, get access to that sort of information now. Yeah, fantastic. Now, you have made your way to Eco Guardians. Can you tell us a little bit about what they do? Yeah, so Eco Guardians is a, I guess, a food waste solutions company, and we we provide different equipment um, to commercial kitchens and uh, and other um, you know large food waste producers. Um, and and so our products sort of range. Um, so we have a we have the capacity to. Um, be able to audit what what the food waste is, what um, you know, sort it between edibles and not edibles. Um, understand volumes of food waste that a that a business might be using, um, and then provide a, a, a waste reduction, a food waste reduction solution, um, which is our dehydrator solution. Um, and then we've got other sort of a more traditional type of composter as well. Um, and then we've got other commercial kitchen uh, equipment. Um, sort of like fat and, and grease guards and fat, you know, things like that that will uh, prevent uh, fat and, and grease going into the, into the sewer system. Great. So we've so got a range of different uh, food waste solution products. And all about that whole circular economy. That's right, yeah. So, so we don't, um, we, we don't, once in the grease guards or the, the, the fat uh, uh, collectors, we don't have a role beyond just providing the, the equipment to, to the customer, but very often that fat gets collected and goes to um, biofuel um, yeah, companies. Okay, very, very interesting. Now, um, bizarrely, the day that Evan uh, messaged me to tell me about you uh, was the day that I read on the ABC about the soil food system which is being trialled by the City of Melbourne, which is your system. Yeah, very exciting. (laughs) So what what is it and, and what's going on with it? Yeah, well, the City of Melbourne um, has a very, um, uh, they've set themselves a big target to reduce um, 
waste from landfill within the, the CBD or within the city of Melbourne bounds um, by 90% uh, by 2030. And so it kind of made sense to the city of Melbourne. If you think about, you know, residents and, and, and who, who, who are living there, that um, residents who live in apartment buildings sort of make up the majority of residents within the city of Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And so they, you know, uh, I guess they decided that um, recycling was definitely going to be one of the, the pillars that sat under um, this, this, this broader um, objective. And, and food waste in particular, um, you know, I think you gave some stats up front, AB, about the enormous food waste. I think it was it 300 kilos or... Yeah, 300 kilos per person annually. Per person, yeah. And so, so 40% of actually the food that is produced in Australia goes to, goes to landfill currently. So, um, yeah, so the City of Melbourne, you know, they're always quite progressive in their thinking around sustainability. Um, so they, they sought to find some solutions uh, and trial those solutions for um, apartment complexes. And, and um, EcoGuardians happens to have a, uh, a food dehydrator uh, solution for apartments. Um, we, we trialled them previously with um, Fraser Properties at their Burwood Brickworks um, uh, a complex. So, for those of you who've been out there, they they created a um, I think it was the you know a, a, a net zero um, shopping centre and an apartment complexes. And so they trialled our system within the apartment buildings there, and and we've been able to bring that solution to the city of Melbourne. And um, what we're also able to do, so not just put in the the dehydrator, um, which reduces the food uh, waste down by about eighty or eighty five percent. Um, by you know removing the moisture, um, it, it, um, it, it it mixes it then and and reduces it to a sort of like almost like a I like a coffee granular kind of um, sort of substance, and and that is actually um, you know that is a highly nutritious uh, substance that we've subsequently we've had it tested we've had it um, soil tested and you know it turns out it, it is a it is a product that is um, highly nutritious on, on gardens and um, in, within the soil. Now, Evan's just passed me a little container of the soil food <laughs> and Fantastic. it looks like it would be really easy to apply to gardens. Yeah, it's very... The application of it is very, very simple. Um, and so what's great about in the City of Melbourne context, um, the residents there can and, and are using it on their... They've got a veggie garden and some beautiful gardens within the complex, and they can also use it on their indoor plants. So we're, we're taking the what comes out of the, the unit. We are sifting it and refining it a little bit um, to remove mostly, you know, plastic contaminants, um, the occasional teaspoon and fork that goes <laughs> in. Um, and the and the compostable bags, which um, you know don't don't break down particularly well, um, so we remove those and then we're packaging up for the residents so that they can use it yeah on their gardens and, and on their potted plants. Um, so in terms of application, I mean you, it is a pre it, it's it's similar to a you know blood and bone or a, um, a dynamic lifter in in terms of the um, you know how it's regarded and, and how it works. Um, so it's it's pretty concentrated. So you only need to use it in very um, you know minimal amounts, particularly on your indoor pots. We're talking you know about you know half a tablespoon, um, depending on the um, on the size of your your potted plant, or or in the garden. You know we're talking about like a, a you know a handful that would be dispersed um, across you know sort of a a handful to to each square meter in in your garden. So it's, it's yeah you 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 um, spread it fairly 
sparsely and then, of course, water it in. Fantastic. And so I've noticed it's not a huge machine, but it's not something that the no. average gardener would uh, have in their lounge room or something. No, no, it's not. So it's, to give you a side, it's kind of like a, a bit larger than like a vending machine that you that you would that you would see. Um, and and you do need you know for the apartment complex solution or any of them. So it's not just we don't just have an apartment um, solution. We uh, the units are being used. We've got about 100 sites across Australia where the units are used, including um, uh, hospitals and, and markets, outdoor markets, or um, like South Melbourne Market and Paran Market. Um, uh, correctional facilities use it. Um, the MCG has one, and, and they use their soil food um, on the Yarra Gardens around the MCG. Um, and yeah, so there's lots. It's used in lots of different locations, um, but yeah, just it wouldn't be normally accessible to 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 um, most gardeners. And I guess the thing to say about that also is that whilst the city of Melbourne, um, you know, is trialling it and, and others have the units, that the soil food itself is not not at the moment commercially available. Um, but that is the future. That's what what we're. Um, looking to to solve at the moment is to be able to bring this product to to all gardeners. So the interesting thing about the sample here is it has a a, a very herby uh, aroma, and you can actually <laughs> see like little coriander uh, seeds and so on. So this potentially has come from a, a restaurant. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So and. Yeah. and, and, and and I should say that the, the unit actually, um, the process that, that, the, that the product or the food waste undergoes, it heats it. So it heats it for um, a, at about 100, 102 degrees for 8 to 10 hours. So in terms of, um, you know, the, the, um, the seeds and things, you know, they, they, won't, they won't sprout as long as they, you know, as long as it's all kept, all kept dry. Um, but, um, but it is, you know... We, the, depends what goes into the um, food waste as to what comes out. And I think also that mix I gave you, Evan, had probably some juniper berries as well because four, um, gin pillars, uh, four pillars gin distillery is one of the users. Um, and, and as I mentioned, you know, we're, we're currently undergoing um, an exercise to be able to bring the product to market. And, and what that will entail was is um, us actually going collecting the, the soil food um, uh, from the customer site, bringing it back to a, a facility that we're currently building that will enable us to um, remove the contaminants. As I said, they're mostly plastics and packaging, um, but, but, you know, we do get some other things in there as well. Um, refine it, like make sure that there's, there's a consistent sort of size in terms of the particles, and, um, and it will give us the capacity to also mix the, the feedstocks from different locations so that we can ensure that we get a consistent um, NPK value um, through through the, the products that we will you know, eventually, um, hopefully by the end of this year, be able to bring to, to gardeners um, through garden care centres. So I think what's really interesting about it is that you can, you know, if you've got a commercial kitchen with a, with a garden associated with it, you can yeah. essentially put all your food scraps into that machine, then put it onto the garden, then grow, you know, because there are um, restaurants around that have their own gardens. More and more. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. And so they could actually put that food waste in. And the uh, I know on your website it talks about, uh, so Cecil, the, I guess, the, the leading soil and 
analyzing company yes. has yes. done results on it and it does come I out have. very much like blood and bone. Mm. Yes. Um, but it also obviously adds a lot of organic matter back into the soil as well. So it's, it's just such a win-win. I just really love the concept. It is, and, and I mean, and Evan, you would know um, that when there's lots of information out there about the damage that um, traditional fertilisers have done with, you know, a long-term use on, on soil and the, and the soil degradation that's happening as a result of that. And, and what we love about um, soil food, it, it is, as you said, you know, it actually adds to the biology of the soil. It, it's, it's providing nutrients um, that are chemical-free, um, back into the soil to you know help grow you know healthy healthy veggies, but also help with the the condition of the soil as well. Um, one of the things I was reflecting back on what Evan said and how you guys met initially, um, not with your product, <laughs> but with the product that was on the uh, the footpath. Um, <laughs> um, with the units, how the, the is there any smell that comes out in the production phase that would impact? the setting that you would have it in. So if it's in a residential setting mm. um, or a hospital setting, if you had something like that and is there a, a, a smell that comes out in the, um, the development stage, the yeah. processing stage? Yeah. I mean, there is, there is a slight odour. It's actually, and it sort of depends on where the unit is sitting. So yep. if it's in a small bin room, there might, and there's not much airflow through the bin room, um, you know, that odour may build up a little bit. But generally speaking, um, you know, there, there is, it's, it's actually really not too bad. In fact, when I, before I took the role, I, I went on a bit of a tour and visited some of the sites and I was actually surprised at how it, it just wasn't particularly smelly at all. Um, one, of, one of the other outputs, of course, you know, with a dehydrator unit, as you would suspect, is water. So there's a lot of water that, that comes out. It does go into the um, sewer. It's clean. It's actually grey water, really. And it could be recycled. We haven't, we're, we're sort of, you know, working out how we might be able to, um, you know, assist with, with that part. But for, for right now, um, you know, it, whilst it does have a slight odour to it, it is just grey water that could be reused. Helen, with the uh, product, the finished product, do you find that the people of the places where you are trialling them use that or does it go elsewhere? Yeah, they, they do use it, AB, but, but you know, um, so, so in the trial with the City of Melbourne, to give you an example of the sort of food waste that we've already processed, I mean, it's over a tonne, um, and and they've got a very small garden at, at Spring, the, the, the complex, Spring Street complex. So what we're doing is we're, we're taking, um, we, we are taking a lot of that, um, the output away, and, and, and we're, whilst we're giving it back to the, the residents, we're also hoping that we can provide that back to the City of Melbourne for um, uh, use on their parks and gardens as well. So that's, that's what we're in, in process of planning right now. So you've processed so a tonne of waste in how long? Um, so I think the trial started just about Christmas time, I think it was. Um, so over that time, and, and it's really interesting, so the, the, the um, units have a, like a smart system data collection so, and, and what we do, um, we program uh, a little fob for each apartment. So we can actually keep track of how much waste each apartment is, is processing, which is really interesting. And they, um, they range it from one-bedroom units up to four-bedroom units. Um, and so we've been able to keep track of, yeah, all the, um, the waste that's been processed and how that relates to um, reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, 
um, you know, reductions in leak, what would be leachates, um, uh, and, and, and all of those sort of data as well. So it, it's not only, and, and I think, you know, there's a lot of data out there about what individuals, you know, how much our food waste is, but it's kind of probably back to 2018, particularly what Sustainability Victoria has. And so we're hoping that this will actually um, create a new ba- baseline of data, particularly for um, apartment complex living. Fantastic. And Helen, is it a system that just takes continual feeding or do you have to put it all in at once and then wait for that to process before you put the next lot in? Yeah, no, it, it's continual. in the With the apartment complex uh, units, it, it is continual. So, you know, you put the waste in um, and it's, it's very simple to use. You, you have your little fob, you put it on the, the key code um, and that allows you then access to open the little door or the little hatch you place in your little your bag of food waste and close the door and, and it will start to process it straight away. It'll just sort of do a pre-process and then once it gets a certain um, amount of waste in the system, it will continue that process, but it is continual. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like an incredible system. Can I, um, <laughs> well, we think it is. <laughs> can I just ask um, how much energy it uses to actually create the dry matter at the end? And yeah, that's a good question. And, and, and it certainly does use energy. Um, and I don't have that data in, in front of me um, for the city of Melbourne. That would have been a good idea. But it, look, there's no question it does use energy. Um, and you do need three-phase power to be able to, to use the units. But where um, you know, we, we have a lot of the data all shows that um, the the um, the benefits and the and the greenhouse gas emissions that in terms of reductions through the food waste far outweigh the energy consumption. So um, that's something that we're very um, cognizant of. Yeah, but I mean, ultimately, you probably want some solar panels that go with the, yeah, <laughs> the yeah, units so that and it's a completely circular thing. That's right. Um, yeah, we want to solve that, and we, we, you know, we'd love to solve the water piece because there's there's great water that can be mm. reused on gardens ultimately as well. So there's there's a couple of opportunities there for us in terms of innovation. But um, yeah, we we did. Um, I will confess that we did have gas systems which we have barely, you know, pretty much replaced um, now. Uh, and and yeah, it, it, we think that you know once we're got um, better access to renewable energy, um, you know, this will be a very, you know, well, it, it already is a very viable um, yeah. product from a sustainability perspective, but it'll even just make it more so. Fantastic. Yes, I guess you've got to have a first draft before you can yeah. improve it. Yeah. Well, that's right. And as I said, I mean, we've, you know, we've, the company's actually, um, you know, 12 years old. So we've been, and initially it was interesting that um, one of our first uh, clients was really a remote mining site where they were looking for a food waste reduction solution because they had to ship, you know, they had to ship everything in and out and it was much more cost effective for them to ship out uh, a much smaller amount of waste. So that's where kind of the business started and, and it's really evolved. So not only the, you know, residential apartments, but now we're working with food manufacturers and um, producers as well. Fantastic. All right, Helen, look, we should, um, we could talk to you for the rest of the day, but we will let you continue on with your lovely day in Hobart. So thank you so much for coming on the show and thanks to Eco Guardians for um, their innovative work. Yeah, and, and I should just add um, that, you know, if anybody would like some additional information, please check us out on ecoguardians.com.au. Fantastic. Good on you, Helen. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye.
That was Helen Steele, CEO of Eco Guardians. So, wow, that was pretty amazing, wasn't it? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. Nice and my compost does still smell down there, too. <laughs> <laughs> so, three weeks later, <laughs> it was a little raw. Uh, I've heard of situations like that happening with others, and they've gone, yes, we became those people in the neighborhood that. <laughs> Oh, you're the ones that did the compost from the front garden, do you like? So, you know, it's just the joys of being in the neighbourhood. That's right. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. Now, I... Get to know your neighbours differently, don't you? Precisely. Well, yes, I wouldn't have yes, ever, I've exactly. never spoken with Helen prior to that. Yeah. So, you know, it's a conversation starter. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Might have to start that myself. <laughs> I think I might get more abuse, but anyway. Um, yeah, now, I did wise everyone up this morning on um, maybe not to bring in any plants because we... We're going to be very talk heavy, and um, but Evan, you have brought in a plant. I brought one just because I'd been meaning to bring it in last time I was here. So I brought in a brachychiton, um, a bottle tree. Um, It's a type of curajong, and this is one that uh, my son and I collected on the roadside um, north of Hewenden, Central Queensland, in a really interesting part of Central Queensland where. Um, It's right near uh, Porcupine National Park, which is quite elevated. So it's Mm. it's sort of, you know, four to eight hundred metres above sea level. So it's a really interesting spot in the in the middle of Queensland. Um, You have plants growing up there like um, lemon scented gums. So the Citria Mm. uh, subspecies Citriodora comes from comes from Mm. around there. and this was just a, a fantastic-looking brachychiton um, that that, uh, that that we spotted on the side of the road and stopped and collected some seed of. So I was going to say, I hope it was seed. You weren't digging them up. Yeah, no, no, no. no. <laughs> so um, you know, it has a it has the the typical boat-shaped wooden yep. seed, mm. um, and uh, I've had six grow. Um, they're very actually very easy to grow. Mm. Um, you just need lots of heat. So yeah. if you if you want to grow brachychiton seed, the key is to um, do it during the summer, and even in a glass house. Mm. So yeah. hot, 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 and they come up pretty readily, and they produce this amazing carrot stem uh, root. Yep, it looks just like a you know a, a white chunky carrot, and it literally just goes straight down really quickly. Um, and uh, and then that that slowly develops and divides. But um, I just think it's quite amazing for such a little plant. The root is way bigger than the top, and and there's so much more mass in it. So how have you found that within <coughs> potting up into? Yeah, terrible. If pots. I pulled this one out, I had it in a six inch pot a little bit too long. Yep. So it's it's sort of really scrunched the um the but, the root. But it's looking like looking at what's above the ground. It's looking beautiful and healthy. So obviously mm. it's not impacting it significantly no it doesn't doesn't seem to i mean they're literally a succulent so you can do pretty much anything to them and they they keep ticking over nice um but i think what's really cool about this one is that it's a different species a different um, subspecies to what we normal normally see in the populaneus um species um so this one's trilobus and um it has when the leaves first come out they're a simple leaf um, and uh, as they mature, as this one has, they have a leaf a little bit like a liquid amber 
I would say. Mm. Something, with three lobes. Uh, with three lobes, yes. yes. Trilobe. <laughs> <laughs> Rather descriptive, isn't it? Um, and uh, and it's just a, just a wonderful plant. So we've mm. been using a few uh, brachychitans, you know, for years. Um, and there's another one that we've been using, which is its own species, but it's called Compactus. Um, and it comes from a tiny area near Ellie Beach, um, around Shute Harbour, that, that space there. Um, and it's... Immature leaves are very much like this up until, I'm not sure what age, but at some point they become a simple leaf. Mm. This one does the reverse of that. Mm. So you have this trilobe leaf, uh, leaf as, it, as it matures into a much larger tree. Yeah, so I just thought it was a really, it's novelty value. It's one of those things, you know, if you are travelling somewhere and you see a plant, um, you know, and you can gather some seed, yeah. Grab some seed and, and have a go. Maybe not in a national park, obviously, but, <laughs> um, you know, but, but grab some seed, yeah. ask around how to grow it, um, and then um, grow it. And then you can put it in your garden and then you have a plant that you've collected from your trip. Mm. You know, it's a, it's a mm. lovely reminder. So we were going up to Cape York. Um, it was on the way back that we um, that we stopped and, and grabbed some of the seed, but it'll always remind us of that Cape mm. York trip. Mm. So it's just a really nice thing to do. I think better than a fridge magnet. I reckon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just can't Toilet move house if you plant it. How tall will this one get, though? Um, well, the other thing of knowing a seed, yeah. a nice little thing, and then you have a tree that you go. Actually, that wasn't the best. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't such yeah, a yeah. good idea. Yeah, yeah, it no. was a great trip we went on. <laughs> So it is a large tree, yep. um, but not they're not very broad. No, yep. um, but it's probably a fifteen meter tree in the very long term. So the tree that we took it off would would have been about that height. Yep. Now you know that's going to take an awfully long time to do it here. Um, but uh, Populineus generally is a is a pretty substantial tree in Melbourne in Victoria, and it's a really good commercial scape streetscape type tree i mean i think one of the great things about brachychitin is the succulent root system that it has so you'll often see them planted quite close to footpaths and they haven't busted the footpath Mm. because they are kind of they're they're very soft Uh, i can think of one in berwick that is literally right next to a a footpath which are not reinforced uh, and Mm. that's why they're always lifting and they don't tend to lift things so you know engineers you know we're convincing them that they should love them um, and, and allow us to put them around car parks and things like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I think, I think just a really interesting tree. The Compactus is a fabulous one if you, if you see that around. It does really get the bottle shape. This mm-hmm. one, Populonese, doesn't really get that really no. chunky bottle shape, but Compactus does and obviously Rupestris does as well. Mm. Rupestris grows up around this area as well. Yeah, interesting. Mm. We've got a couple of uh, straight populneus and they are semi-deciduous, so they will push their leaves off just as the new leaves are coming through, So, mm. which is fantastic. And mm. I'd be interested to see if this one does that. Yeah, I, I feel like it won't. Mm-hmm. Um, Illawarra flame tree will do that as well when they flower, which is not every year in Melbourne. They might flower mm. every couple of years, but they drop their leaves flower and then grow their leaves back again, or yep. within about sort of six weeks. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what this one does. I'll report back in about 30 years' time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Put a marker on that one. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Well, it's a, it's a good-looking seedling, that's for sure. Mm. Yeah, yeah so nice. I think the key, if I was to do it again, and I have since found that in commercial nurseries they grow them in a rocket pot, which mm. initially they sow the seed in a, in a very deep, narrow pot. So it's, it's probably 
300 mil deep and only about uh, 150 wide. And they're just a wrap, you know, those pots that are just a wrap. Um, and that allows that initial root to, to chuff down to a decent depth. Mm. 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 Very good. Well, mm. thank you for bringing that in. Now, did you plant that into uh, native potting mix or standard potting mix? Uh, just standard. Standard. Standard yeah. potting yeah. mix, yeah. 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 I, I, pretty hard to kill brachychitans generally. Um, they don't like really cold, wet soil, uh, as far as I can tell. When they're put into into landscapes, into broad landscapes, sometimes we have have them that they really sit for quite a while. But I think that's not really ever going to happen mm. in a pot. Mm. Yeah, yeah, very good. All right, mm. we have a text come in from Spiros in Williamstown. It says, "Dear gardening team, love your. I would love your ideas, suggestions on the following." The foreshore parks at Williamstown along the Esplanade have been in decline for a few decades. The trees are dying, new plantings die off, grass is dead, there's no garden beds and other infrastructure is passed as used by date. I've written to council, presented at council, yet nothing comes of it. What do you think I could do to get commitment from council to upgrade them? That's a tricky one. Maybe just go out and start planting yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think the idea is you gather a community group together. Yeah, yeah. And so the bigger the numbers, the bigger the voice. Um, I know that's happening in Upper Beaconsfield with Charing Cross really trying to upgrade the park. I mean, Upper Beaconsfield is in the Cardinia Council, which has got massive growth corridors. So the older areas tend to get a little bit forgotten. Um, there's not the same finance that goes yeah. into the older areas. So... Um, but there's a very strong community group up there and they've been pushing really hard for for quite a long time and they are getting results. Yeah. It takes it's time and yeah, voices. It's a slow burn, but get, yeah, gather, gather, gather the people around you that are passionate. Sort of surprises well. me a bit because Williamstown's such a popular place to visit, mm. so you'd think well, they'd be going all out for That was one of the things that came to mind was around tapping into the tourism aspect of mm. the suburb and the area because it is. It is an attractive area to go to and people are interested to go and see. So whether that can help the case, uh, presenting the case of what we, what, how, how do we want to present to those that come to see our suburb. Yeah, and maybe go along with a, a list of uh, suggested plants, Indigenous or at least native, of course. Yeah, I'm interested, to, uh, obviously, bigger question, bigger situation to um, unpack, but I'm interested to hear that there's a lot of... Uh, decline in the growth so does that suggest that there's something in the soil or is that about the maintenance. maintenance capacity mm. um but o- yeah. overuse overuse of soil. yeah yeah maybe yeah or the wrong people. plant selection mm. Mm. yeah Could be get your local paper involved if you've still yes. got one yeah, yeah. <laughs> i right. think local facebook now isn't it yeah, yeah, yeah exactly the way yes, to yes. Uh, another garlic question penny okay. just coming back to garlic sure. I This is from Di in Northcote. I'd like to grow garlic in the ground this year. I have a north-facing veggie bed with improved soil on a clay base. How should I prepare the soil and what type of garlic would be successful? Um, well, look, really any, any sort of garlic will be successful, but probably the easiest ones are in the artichoke group, so they don't grow scapes. Um, and the turban garlics do well in this in in our area, and I'd go for a creole 
as well, like a um, <clears throat> a Rojo de Castro or Rojo del Pebasa are, are two really nice creoles. Um, main main thing for the soil is sun, um, really good drainage. They hate having wet roots. Um, so you may, if you if you've got a clay base, you may want to raise the bed a bit, um, and don't put them too close together, about fifteen centimeters at least apart, so that you've got the space. And you need to have slightly limey soil, rather than a neutral's okay. And you can go into a little bit of acid, but um, too much acid, and they won't be happy either. So those those are the main characteristics. I I add as much organic matter as I can get in there. Um, and you know you could do that in in the getting your soil ready to you know build build it up, and I always mulch my garlic after I've planted it. So, um, but if if it if you get an unexpected wet patch, sometimes you need to pull it back. Mm. But yeah, so those are the, those are the main characteristics, and and don't overfeed it. If you've prepared your soil properly, don't give it too much nitrogen. You'd need the nitrogen once the bulbs start swelling, which is after the shortest day, and um, where, as as the temperature starts going up, it's when you need a bit of nitrogen. Mm. So, is your book still available? Yep. Ha <laughs> Yes. If you if you want to know literally everything about garlic, just get Penny's garlic book. So that's where is that Thank available? You. Um, you can get it from my website, but yep. it's still in shops. If you ask shops to get it in, yep. um, they can get it in. Yeah, that is you. so comprehensive. I just it's love just it. Called it's called garlic. My Go to. <laughs> so if you're on a sandy soil, um, would sandy you? Sandy soil's perfect. It's perfect, and yeah. just a lot of organic matter yep. mixed in with the soil. Yep. Um, Compost. Yep. Um, yep. Well rotted manure, but don't don't. You need it. To, manure needs plenty of time to break down before you plant into it. So mm. you, you, it's probably even too late now. But um, yeah, but compost is great. Mm. And there's various online shops that sell. Garlic, aren't there? Yeah, look, I'd go go to go to the um, Australian Garlic Industry Association website, and Mm -hmm. they have a growers and sellers page. Um, and they're mostly small growers, you know, so they're all what we call boutique growers. So, some great growers there. Fantastic. I think one of the hard things about if they get too wet, if it's very heavy soil, Mm. is that's when they get those fungal diseases on them as well. And then it's really hard to get them out of the soil um, because it's always wet. Yeah. Uh, whereas yeah. if it's sandy, they, they're sort of already drying off a little bit as yeah. they get older. Yeah. Can yeah. you grow grow it in pots? Um, you can. You won't get as big a bulb. Yep. But, yes, you can grow them in pots, but just don't put too many in the pot. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a, a reasonable-sized pot, just put three or four plants in yep. there. Yeah. And don't try and grow other things with them. They hate competition. Fair enough. And growing from the scapes, do people do that a lot? As You mean from oh, the bulbals? From, from the bulbals, sorry. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, look, you can. I mean, not all garlics grow, grow have bulbils, mm-hmm. um, so you can't with those. Some of them have really tiny bulbils where you've got a hundred in the in the umbel. Mm. Um, they take three years before you can get a full size bulb mm-hmm. of, of growing, replanting, growing, replanting. Turbans take um, only uh, two years, um, and there are some big ones, but they're harder to find. So rocan bowls and Asiatics tend to have big bulbs that you can actually get a full-size bulb. In and do they year. all come true to form? Yeah. 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 Yeah, they're all clonal. Yep. Very good. That's all great. right. I'm just going to read a few texts that have come through. Um, congratulations and thank you, Stephen. 
for all innovative ways. You have beautified sections of three Austin Health campuses, plus the lovely floral arrangements you put in staff tea rooms during COVID-19. You make a difference. Thank you very much. Isn't that nice? Uh, someone else has, uh, Wendy in Newport, has said she did a tour in Flinders Lane on the um, Eco Guardians um, okay. machines, and she said they're very efficient, did a tour. Um, so she, Wendy appreciated that. And, um, oh, someone else about the gardens. How much of the gardens are at the hospital are accessible to the general public? I saw someone queuing for the vaccine and would love to see more. Um, it's uh, a, a good question. Uh, it depends on, we have got some spots at uh, three different sites where they're all accessible mm -hmm. um, for anyone coming through. Uh, at a Royal Talbot site, there's a lot more uh, garden spaces there, but there are some tucked away in patient-specific courtyards. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a bit of a mixture. So yes, there are some available. Uh, our Austin site our main mothership site is a bit of a challenging spot because it's pretty much concrete there, mm -hmm. um, but there's and there's less available, um, and some areas are a little bit uh, harder to get to at the moment with being cordoned off. We're still in the world of COVID mm -hmm. in the hospital setting, so yep. there's still influences from that, so um, that impacts on some access to some areas. But um, yeah, probably best to potentially get, potentially get in contact with me to try and describe them better. Yeah. Um, for access. But there are some, I haven't quite claimed every bit of land yet, but little by little, one space at a time. Beautiful. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, look, it is that time again, uh, end of the show. So I'd like to first of all thank uh, Doug Humbert and Matt O'Dwyer for producing. They're waving at us from the other studio. Uh, thanks for Liz for doing our socials. And thanks to Stephen Wells, Evan Gorky and Penny Woodward for coming in and sharing your expertise. It's been an absolute pleasure this morning. And uh, thanks to everyone for tuning in to the 3CR Gardening Show. We'll be back again next week. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.